Welcome back, everyone. We are here today to talk about an album called The Velvet Underground and Nico by an artist called The Velvet Underground and Nico. Are you going to peel the banana, Mike? <laughs> I mean, if you can find a copy Don't that peel it. has the banana on it, would you peel it? No way. <laughs> I guess we already know what's under there. Instantly drop all the value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you got to leave that banana on there. Yeah. Uh, the only copies I've seen in record stores, uh, it does not have a peelable banana. Mm, um, this yeah, one would yeah. just, because uh, that was limited. Um, if you don't know what we're talking about, then just Google that album and you'll, I mean, I certainly, even before I knew the music, I recognized the picture. Exactly. That's yeah. for sure. And you may be wondering why we're talking about this so uh, casually and frankly, but it's because we've already tackled this album before. That's right. Um, this one came in at number 13 and it's fallen 10 spots to number 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting album, one that neither of us were very familiar with. And now we no. can we can talk about it like it's an old friend. <laughs> um, yeah, I I guess I want to ask you a couple of questions, Ben. Sure. Um, this was one that we both found very interesting. Um, I'm curious, though, since we reviewed it, have you listened to it much since then? I don't think so. I have... Uh, uh, a significant amount of fondness and I'm not exactly sure why I haven't gone back and listened because I have a very positive I I have two things in my mind weird and I think this is kind of interesting uh, which is different than some of the other weird music we've tackled so far um, (laughs) that I haven't necessarily found as interesting Um, but I'm not sure why it it isn't something that that I've gone back and and uh, tried to, to tackle again. Uh, maybe like some of the other music we've recently talked about that requires you to invest something of yourself. I think this is somewhat similar. Like I, I feel if I'm going to put it on, I have to devote myself to really trying to figure it out or at least being fully present in the weirdness. And I, I don't always have that much time or energy or capacity to, to do that with an album like this. Right. I I feel similarly, I didn't really go back to it much, uh, even though I, I found it very compelling, very interesting, uh, a very specific genre of music that I had listened to from a specific kind of scene in New York. Um, uh, there's one song that I know I've listened to repeatedly since then, and that's uh, I'm Waiting for the Man. And I really, really like that song, probably my favorite on the album. Although I think you and I both felt the same way i got a much greater appreciation for it <laughs> having had that wonderful conversation with bob brown when we reviewed oh, it the absolutely. first time and yeah. he really helped i think again both of us uh, really understand why it was important to him and why it was important to so many musicians moving through the 60s 70s 80s and beyond and why it was so influential and how i think he said something like and you can listen to it uh, we're gonna we're going to tack the review on after this um, being, he said being genuine will always be relevant. And that's what they were was uh, mm-hmm. very genuine uh, yeah. in their, in their music, very transparent. And that was, uh, it was a little jarring at times yet. Very, 
very genuine. So um, I'm okay with it moving down 10 spots. I think still for a lot of the younger generation, I think this is going to be very obscure. Yeah. Which is why I could see it dropping, even though it's immensely influential. I don't think it's as familiar to a lot of people and maybe even some of the people or the generations of people who are were voting on this new 2020 list. So mm-hmm. I think it's appropriate. Uh, still 23 is high up on the list. It is. Uh, so it's, it's up there. I'm curious if it will continue to fall because of that very reason that it's just not so. something that gets played frequently. Um, with future lists, we might see it fall down even further. Uh, there's there's a mystique to it, and it's like a it's an album that I think gives you immediate uh, street cred to sort of say you you're a fan of this album. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think uh, because it has this reputation as the album that launched a thousand bands or whatever the saying was, um, but but I don't know that people I don't know that it's getting new fans these days uh and i think for that reason it's it's probably going to continue to fall yeah uh yeah what's that saying uh it only sold five thousand copies but every person who bought it uh started a band <laughs> yeah right yeah. <laughs> something like that that's good mm-hmm. that's a good quote mm-hmm. um if you haven't listened to this album yet i really encourage you to go listen to it it's a it's a it's very really interesting album yeah. uh and really important if you want to understand what influenced punk and how we got into that genre into the seventies. So this is a really good one to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hope you will come back and join us next time when we discuss album number 24 on the Rolling Stone magazine list, which is Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. But before that, we hope you'll stick around, listen to our review of the Velvet Underground and Nico with Bob Brown. That's coming up right after this. But don't share it with too many people or the album might continue to be more popular and then we'll all be wrong. <laughs> awesome. Former guest Colin. Hey, Ben and Mike. Thanks for, thanks for asking me about uh, the uh, Velvet Underground um, and Nico. Um, dropping from 13 to 23. I think it makes sense. I think there's a lot. As much as there was some some really special stuff on the Velvet Underground. It's also, it's also derivative, you know, um, they did some really fun work, but I, I think it's also part of that lens shift. I think when you look at white rock, rock and roll bands, you, you can't overstate the Velvet Underground's influence, but when you, uh, take off the horse blinders a little bit, they, they definitely were, uh, a little bit of a blip on the radar in a lot of in a lot of the rest of music. So, thanks for asking. Thanks for talking. It was uh, it was good being part of your show. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone, and today we are discussing album number 13 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, and this album is The Velvet Underground and Nico by The Velvet Underground.
If you follow us on social media, you know that uh, Mike and I admitted several weeks ago, I guess now, that neither one of us had any idea about this album. We were sort of brand new to it. And so we put out a request on various social media spaces saying, does anyone want to help us out? Does anyone know anything about this album? And um, my friend Bob Brown got in touch and said, it's actually an album that's pretty important to him. And uh, that's the best way to get yourself included as a guest <laughs> on this podcast is to just simply raise your hand yeah, and say, yes, I'm interested. <laughs> yes. Um, so Bob and I met uh, a few years ago. We were both uh, Mennonite ministers in Allegheny Mennonite Conference here in sort of Western Pennsylvania. Um, Bob uh, transitioned away from this area, but we've stayed in touch a little bit. We're both, uh, I guess, Mennonite ministers who think outside the box a little bit and have gotten um, some projects together, kind of pushing the denomination on some of its traditional stances. And uh, and for that reason, I've, I've feel like he's a, a kindred spirit, even though I don't know him all that well, but someone I really respect and admire in the work that he does and this calling that he has. But the other really cool dynamic about Bob is that for many years, I think even longer than you've been a minister, you've been a DJ. Um, and so you've got this musical background, uh, not only in appreciating uh, the Velvet Underground, but in, in sort of that DJing uh, dance music world that's also very different than the background that Mike and I uh, uh, come to this with. And, and I think for both of those reasons, it's going to be uh, really valuable to have you here on the podcast with us today. So thanks so much, Bob, for, for taking yeah. the time to do this and for being here with us. Yeah, well, th thanks for having me. I, uh, I've always uh, have experienced the same kindred spirit with you, uh, Ben, and the work you do uh, in State College has always been uh, something that excites me that's happening in our church. So, Yeah. I think we need those people at the margins kind of, uh, you know, someone once told me it, it, it takes a lot to steer a big ship and the change mm. happens very, very slowly, but yeah. Um, yeah. you need people to push that wheel. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was born in 1976, so that gives you some frame of kind of how old I, I am and was and, uh, you know, music and sort of alternative music, uh, which included a lot of music that stemmed from the Velvet Underground was really important to me during my high school days. Um, at some point during that time, I, I did uh, transition to uh, like 94, 93. Uh, I graduated high school in 94. Um, transitioned into this kind of techno DJ role, uh, which is a very specific subgenre of what we would now call electronic dance music, even though that's not a term anybody would have heard of in 1994. <laughs> uh, but so yeah, so I, I uh, spent time in that in that uh, world. Uh, lived in Philadelphia for a while, produced music and DJed, and then yeah, and then at some point I became a Mennonite pastor. So uh, it's been a <laughs> as, as DJs do, as, do, as you do, yeah. right? right. <laughs> so yeah, oh, that's awesome. Well, Mike and I were born in 82, so um, we're not that much younger than you, but I think there is something about the decade that you were born in mm -hmm. and how you understand mm -hmm. music. Yeah. Um, so even just those several years probably will make will mean that there are some differences in how the kind of music that we digested as younger adults and um, and where we ended up today. And I've always had this strange little urge, or strange a piece of me, and this may be part of what <laughs> drives, uh, this, it might drive my life a a little more than it should, but um, this desire to be um, sort of on, on the on the margins, on the on the edges, like mm. 
Um, <clears throat> so that sort of drives the music that I produce, the music that I DJ, the music that I listen to. Um, you know, and that may be part of this. Uh, you know, this kind of relationship I have with the Velvet Underground may may stem from that. And the kind of uh, pastor you ended up becoming. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'm curious, Mike. Is it is it an album that you had? Uh, any sense of before we began this project? I recognize the banana. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be my <laughs> extent of my, I, the Velvet Underground as, as a name was something I had in my mind as yes. an important band. No, I'm beyond the banana, which I mean, the, that picture I had seen and knew that it was an album of music, but I really couldn't place it anywhere and i had heard of the velvet underground and somehow i feel i knew that lou reed was was in it okay and that's it i'd never listened to it i didn't know any of them any music from any of their albums at all and i somehow had a feeling that i thought it was like punk or or kind of a predecessor to punk which of course it is so i kind of expected a bit of that kind of raw uh, kind of, yeah. I don't know. You know that sense, like punk yeah. in its essence is is you know it's not polished. It's it's so much about rebellion. It's not about even knowing how to play your music. It's just a big middle finger to anybody who yeah. uh, who says anything about you. And certainly, there's a lot of that in this album. So I was right on, but I didn't know what that would sound like. Yeah. Uh, so so pushing play the first time. I had I had no idea, and even yeah. halfway through, I still had no idea. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's not necessarily negative because yeah. Uh, and 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 I don't I don't want to I don't want to poo poo it right away because it was yeah. very different. And you know, I might have played my hand a little bit on some mm, of the comments mm. I've shared already, but I want to say right off the bat, I don't think this is a bad album. So I don't want you guys. Going like, oh boy, here my here comes Mike. He's gonna just go over it again um, because that's not the case. But really, I'm 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 hoping Bob that you can help me appreciate it more and help me understand. Really, the one thing I'm missing, and I hope you can shed a little more light on this, is its impact on all the music that came after it. Because anything I read, that's all anyone says. But I'm having a hard time grabbing some of the specifics. People are saying, you know, the one great um, quote, I can't remember who said it. I think it was Brian Eno said, you know, it, it wasn't a successful album. It only sold 30,000 copies, but every single one of the people who bought them started a band. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's the impression I get from this album that it's monumentally influential and i feel so embarrassed that for someone who says he loves music and music history has no experience with it but everybody else in the world does supposedly (laughs) and everybody who's ever made important music listen to this album so i'm i'm just having a hard time piecing that together and hopefully by the end of the next 30 minutes no pressure you can uh (laughs) you can shed some light there and i'm wondering if there's a generational uh hiccup that that we might be a part of or something that happens um, for folks who are just a little bit older, we've mentioned, I've mentioned this now to a couple of friends. One was, uh, Jason Crane, who we recorded with last week. Um, you know, right. Jason's about 10 years older than us. And he right away was like, Oh man, that's, that's such an important album. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned it to a friend who's staying with us this week, who is 
the same age as us and he said oh yeah that was the band that slash was in just a few years ago right he oh, had oh no velvet revolver oh. <laughs> uh not velvet underground and so like there's something in the the decade that we were born where i don't know it almost had become this forgotten piece of uh, seminal material that inspired everyone but but didn't have the lasting power and maybe some of that is the the dynamic of you know even when it was released it was banned from radio stations it was banned from record stores it was it was just too edgy for that moment in time um and so it didn't get the airplay it didn't get the the lasting power and the longevity uh, that some of these other albums that were that were tackling did um i don't know i'm i'm curious too how this conversation tonight will will shape and influence that I think there, there's there's these multiple conversations I'm I'm processing as we talk about it. Um, yeah, if we name an album as good, right, just because of its uh, whatever its uh, originality or its right, it's 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 this kind of new thing, right? Um, you know, there's a, there's a limitation to naming to naming an album that way because then you have to really actually dig into what the context is and who was doing what at the time and right. So how, how, and how, how, uh, creative and new and right. You can't say this is something that sprouted out of nowhere unless you know the ground it was growing out of. And, um, yeah. and I struggle to, <clears throat> I think, uh, so I, I, I was, I remember it was maybe like three or four years ago, maybe longer. The beach boys were on the Grammys and, um, it was like kind of one of the last, Times that how ha- they they had some sort of tribute and they did good vibrations right and like there's this there's this they're doing like four part harmonies and they got the vibraphone out I mean not the vibraphone the uh, uh, theremin they got theremin out doing like right stuff and yep. um <laughs> and uh, and I at that at that point I had like someone had explained like this this record was out there you know what I mean. When Good Vibrations came yeah. out, it was out there. And I was like, are you yeah. kidding me? You know, like, that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, my six-year-old just put on Rage Against the Machine today. Um, <laughs> right? So, like, <laughs> so like, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, this is out there. Like, my six-year-old likes Rage, right? So, um, like, he chose it. He was, like, looking through the iPad and picked it up. So, um, so there's just this kind of how do you even understand yeah. And then there's this next level too for me of also understanding, like as we talk about our rock and roll, uh, which stems out R and B, which right, right, um, which is black music, which is sort of <clears throat> music that had been, um, I mean, there's appropriated or exploited, you know, depending on how you want to use that language. Like how much of what um, the Velvet Underground that was was right, like in some level, what Elvis was doing was exciting because he was a white dude. Um, yeah. you know, there are pieces of it at some level, like what was, what, what parts of this kind of the rock and roll for me, which is what the, the deep rock and roll kind of European sun and waiting for my man songs are the, the things that speak to me on this. And mm. how much of that is basically just, yeah. you know, is that just, is that just blues? Is it just white boy blues? So that's the other thing that I wrestle with too, is we talk about this album, like this album was awesome because it was so, you know, new or original, like, I don't think yeah. any of us, any, uh, I mean, we can look at Rolling Stone and say, Hey, you guys know what's new and in, new and original. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then at the same point, you know, you, there's that, you know, wrestling with the fact that, 
uh, I don't know how high, how many, how many albums deep do you have to go before you get one that was written by people of color? Um, on that list, you, you guys might have already had that conversation. Well, so far we've only hit one, and that was number six, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." Oh, that's but right. I, you are, yeah. I will say I don't think we hit another one for a while. Yeah. Well, Jim, uh, Jimmy, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. number yeah, fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Miles Davis at kind of blue, number twelve. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So there's a few. There's a few. Okay. It, but it is it is uh, less yeah. than, and it takes. Uh, it takes all the way until 30 to get to a, a female lead. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a biased <laughs> and lots, of, lots of reasons. Right, right. And there's all the reasons and historical stuff that, that, that yeah. play into that, too. So yeah, Don't even get my wife started about <laughs> how low Joni Mitchell is on this list. And she's, she's that's number 30, and she's going to join us. And I might have to be sick that episode. <laughs> Uh, and you guys could just do that on your own because <laughs> so oh man it's going to be really good but it's going to be intense yeah yeah, yeah. Good. but i i mean but here's the thing I, oh you oh. should probably cut that or she'll kill me when you listen oh that means it's totally staying in so um oh shoot i would shut my big mouth i don't i mean for me i i guess but but what i would say is but this if i had to list like this would make it in my top 20 albums, right? Like of my own personal preference, I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this, more in terms of songs. There's this other dynamic that we've been struggling with, which is does popularity need to be a part of the equation too? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this was not very popular. It might have been influential, but it was not music that played everywhere. It was played, you know, by multiple generations and... Yeah, all of that. All that goes into this conversation. And, and even as Mike and I did an episode where we re-ranked the top 10, um, even though we were born the exact same year and have very similar upbringings, our lists are different. And um, and we had different reasons for picking things and moving things. And they had different elements of what was popular and different elements of, you know, this is just the thing that I want to put on today and listen to. And uh, yeah. Yeah. so, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge anytime you yeah. make these, these things. <laughs> We'll get into some of the details of it. Okay, so just to put it in a specific place in time, this album was released March 12, 1967, uh, which when I listen to it, I find fascinating. Um, It was written by Lou Reed, mostly. John Cale gets a couple credits along with Lou Reed. And as we talked about popularity, this did not chart... Well, compared to the other albums we've listened to so far, it was number 43 in the UK and number 129 in the US, which again is interesting because they, they were out of New York, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Bob, but, but they recorded, I think, most of this in New York and they were from New York. Yeah, I, w- I would uh, figure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it did better in the UK. Maybe they were able to uh, mm. associate with it more. And for sales uh, to this date, somewhere around half a million. So uh, from what I could research, and some of those numbers are hard to come across, and it was hard to find U.S. numbers, but somewhere around half a million. And as Brian Eno said, it only initially sold 30,000, but there's a band that started from each one of those copies. Um, This band was produced by Andy Warhol, which is, I think, interesting to note. It was kind of a project that he was doing uh, some of his art and then also in music as well. He was involved. I think it was only this album that he produced and then they went kind of on their own after that, but we can get into that 
And then my favorite part of details, and I hope that someone did more research than I did on this, was the album cover, um, which again, I've seen this picture. So it's a it's Andy Warhol's art. It's got his name on it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it's that yellow banana peel. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, on the original release, that was a sticker that you could peel off. Mm-hmm. Right. And then underneath it is is a naked banana. Mm-hmm. And kind of a fleshy color mm-hmm. naked yeah. banana, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was a provocative sticker on the sort of shrink wrap, too, right? Like peel at your own risk. I forget what the actual... Peel slowly and see. Peel slowly and oh. see. That's much better than Whoa. people at your own risk. So, um, yeah, in an era before uh, the internet, I'm imagining the temptation of like trying to figure out: Do I peel the sticker off, be stuck with something that's worse than what I got here? <laughs> uh, do I get a friend to do it to their copy? Um, it would have been a weird, a weird test of your, uh, uh, I don't know, your stomach, I guess. To, Try and figure out what direction you go. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have peeled the sticker. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> no, what about they, you guys? Would you have done it? Yes. <laughs> you would have peeled? Absolutely. I have to know what's under there. <laughs> I, can't believe, I can't believe that you wouldn't have. You definitely would have. I, here's what I think I would have done. I would have peeled a third of it and seen the like weird pink banana underneath and just tried to stick it back up <laughs> <laughs> and hope your mom doesn't see. Um, and hope my mom, oh boy. Yeah, and hope my mom doesn't see. The, I don't think she would have been thrilled with this album coming yeah. in the door. It's just a anyway. banana. It's just a banana. <laughs> um, it's just a banana. The, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I actually ended up buying the box set. That's uh, called peel slowly mm. and see. That's like uh, kind of their whole, their whole uh, catalog, and that has uh, that has a color form cool. banana on it. So it's like it sticks back on. Or is that what it's called? Color forms, like you know the things that stick on windows. They're sort of plasticky. Oh, so you can oh, just yeah. peel it yeah, and yeah. put it back on. Like you just you have to. It's an oh, inconsequential nice. peeling. <laughs> there was um i don't know i don't know why i'm thinking about this i might just cut it out later but i for a while when we were growing up the different record stores would put the the promotional stickers um some of them would do it on the shrink wrap and some of them would do it on the jewel case and i remember having this tension oh. of like do i buy the copy that says uh i don't know something like our newest album ever or something that's going to get torn off when I take off the shrink rack or do I want the one that's going to hold that sort of forever as the sticker on the, on the jewel case. And I remember feeling conflicted about that. So that's maybe what gives me pause when I think about being faced with this choice of the sticker. <laughs> well, I have, I, I can relate. I have a, it's actually a joy division album um, that uh, was only available on import when I bought it. Um, that's a weird little yeah. thing that doesn't, exists anymore and um it was uh it had a little made in england sticker on the back and i was debating whether to peel it off or not so oh yeah 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 so it's like half it's like i peel i started on a corner and then i stopped so (laughs) (laughs) that's funny what did was this uh, banana image something that warhol had done previously was it made for the album do we know that yeah uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you know Warhol, but he just uh, the, the the originality, like 
kind of like, and Warhol are kind of like like he intentionally everything he made at that at that stage of his career when he had gotten to this point, you know, when he really dove into this pop art thing, like it was everything was intentionally derivative. So this notion of something new yeah. is kind of a it's it, it's it's weird to kind of bring that up in a conver- I don't know, like to me as I think about. Warhol was purposefully <laughs> like his work was purposefully deliver- derivative of himself, of Campbell's, of Marilyn, whatever. Right. Like it was per. So yeah, yeah. He sort of yeah. He he's an artist, but it I know it also starts to get into this weird kind of yeah. stamping yeah, yeah, yeah. out art or like right. art becoming mass produced in the midst of yeah. popularity and uh, and he sort of leans in there rather than doing what a lot yeah. of artists do, which is pull back. Um, there's a note uh, on the Wikipedia page for this album that says MGM actually paid uh, extra to, to come up with a machine that was capable of stamping out these album mm. covers that had a sticker uh, on it. So it, it sort of added to the, the financial <laughs> collapse of this album. It, you know, it had additional print costs associated with it for this weird uh, Warhol idea and design. And when it didn't sell, I'm sure they were thinking like, what have we done? We've, we've paid extra yeah. to put this thing on the shelves and no one wants it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah, there's a well. I don't. I don't know. I mean, in uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, exists the Andy Warhol Museum, and there's sort of a, a little section oh. dedicated mm. to the weirdness that is Andy Warhol plus Velvet Underground. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a little. It's a. It's, it's oh, not cool. a little. It's a super trippy uh, excursion within the space with you know music and video and cameras and stuff. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I, I, if you have any fascination with that's awesome. Um, sort of that huh. that time period and those people, it's definitely a. I'm preaching at Pittsburgh Mennonite this Sunday. Maybe I need to make an extended yeah, trip. Yeah, you should go. go. It's, a, it's a very wonderful. It's a very wonderful mm. museum if you if you uh, are into weird art. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a back cover controversy too, right? This was not just a, a weird front album cover, but. Um, the back cover had a lawsuit associated with it. Uh, the The back of the album has the band performing live, but there's an image kind of projected uh, behind them. The image was of an actor, Eric Emerson, who sued the band. He was uh, apparently sort of hard up for money and figured he'd uh, sue the band to get some money for this unauthorized use of his image. And uh, the the weird thing was uh, MGM pulled the albums off the, the record store shelves to replace the back cover rather than giving into his, his lawsuit. <laughs> and so we've got this... F- funky front cover weird back cover that then gets pulled and redone and airbrushed out um it just must have been uh something that record executives were were really scratching their heads over the entire time just a pr nightmare yeah you would imagine (laughs) yeah and i'm sure they would have been fine with all of those things had it sold well yeah exactly right it would have been just worth it yeah absolutely absolutely uh the the album kind of feels like it dates it um you know it doesn't you know, we've talked about some of the album covers so far that that feel timeless this this warhol print kind of puts this album in a time capsule in a way oh, yeah. that 
I don't think yeah. any of the other things that we've talked about do. Um, it's really fascinating what a, an image can yeah. can transport you to like that. Yeah, even before really reading that it was Andy Warhol and, and not, of course, not reading his name on there, but just seeing the banana, my brain was going, oh, yeah, is that is that like an Andy Warhol piece? Kind of looks like something he would have done. Yeah. So right away, you know, his art is so recognizable, just that style, which is pretty fascinating if you think about it, because it's very simple. It's not like it's not like it would be that hard to make that type of art, mm-hmm. but he did it first and he did it best, I think. And so everyone knows when they see something with that kind of look, they know it's him or at least somebody who's replicating his style. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty special. I think for someone who's not, I'm not really, I don't really study art at all. I'm not very familiar with a lot of art, uh, but for even me to recognize it, that's kind of cool. And that certainly does put this album in a very specific yeah. place in time, even to the untrained eye, Absolutely. Uh, which is, which is unique. And you're right, Ben, it does, does date it, but it also makes it special, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Bob, usually at this time, you know, we talk about the tracks and depending on the album, we don't mention every track and I don't think I'm going to go through and list every track, but I'm wondering, uh, do you have any favorites or some that when you listen to the album really jump out to you or you just want to talk about every single one because you love it so much? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I mean, it's funny because for me, part of the story is, and this is my understanding, uh, is that uh, Nico, uh, right. Uh, we was part of this album because of Andy Warhol, right? Yes. So, so at some point, I, I understand that she kind of uh, got a little shoehorned in there, or um, that there was some sort of you know. At some point, when when Andy Warhol wants to help you with your album, you go, okay, you know, <laughs> um, sounds good. Uh, you know, you, you, I'll take that. And um, and I feel like there's pieces of it that were sort of shaped a little bit more. Um, that you know the kind of uh as i was reading some of the notes as we were we were all discussing sort of the more kind of 60s um flower children kind of feel like those songs to me are are ones that i kind of tolerate on this album you know Hmm. um you know like Hmm. uh all tomorrow's parties that just uh, just drags on and on and um (laughs) you know Sunday morning, like it's cute because because uh, I'm a pastor, I guess, and like <laughs> just the title, you know. But um, but for me, you know, it's like I'm waiting for my man, for for the man, uh, run, 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 um, and European Sun, like those ones, and just kind of push, you know. They just have that kind of when that bass line kicks in on on European Sun, it's just this, just kind of pulled into this chaos with this sort of. The sort of funky running bass line, and then all of a sudden, there's just you know, it sounds like eight people just making as much noise as possible, even though it's, it's, it's four. Um, so, so for me, there's just kind of you know, I'm waiting for the man just this kind of do 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 do, you know, this kind of jam that just kind of goes, yeah. um, it just pulls you in, there's just sort of this this force, this momentum to it that, that I feel, and I don't necessarily get that on on the uh, on all the songs you know like uh um so yeah that's that's where i kind of kind of struggle with the the track list is there's these songs that just really stand out and other ones i just sort of i just sort of get through you yeah. know 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much the genre sound changes from track to track. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned that sort of uh, uh, flower child sound, femme fatale, especially as this like almost lullaby kind of song. But it's stacked right next to "I'm Waiting for the Man," yeah. which is like, like you said, has that driving beat and pulse to it. Um, you were gonna say something? Yeah, that song "I'm Waiting for the Man" is sandwiched between, and and the the term I use is the hippy dippy mm-hmm. sound. Yeah. Um, uh, Sunday morning and all tomorrow's parties, very kind of. I just imagine someone moving their hands up and down with their eyes closed in a field of daisies uh, and everybody dancing slowly in a circle you know like um, I was confused by the dichotomy between these two very different sounds just going back and forth you know to hear and and like uh, you know like just so much of it the Black Angels Death song was so dissonant and and scraping and grating at times against against you know the glockenspiel at the beginning uh, it's like what's going on here and and (laughs) part part of that is intriguing but part of it is like did they have was there any uh was there any intention in this or was it just like oh we've got 11 (laughs) tracks now uh we got (laughs) 11's enough right well they don't really sound the same well we're ready you know like i don't know i I, I, can you put any sense to that? I mean, yeah. because men, as you've as you've expressed, Bob, many of them they don't yeah. fit at all together. That doesn't mean they don't yeah. belong. No, I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. what I'm saying. But they don't. But they're not similar. What's funny? At all. Uh, the, the the thing that popped into my mind, uh, the first part is I, I just want to say like the Black Angels Death song is is just this. It's a masterpiece for me. Like like I just I mm. I mean it's just this crazy little thing. You know, it's just this crazy thing and I, I know there's other songs like it but I don't know anything like it right um, like it's just right, it, like right. you said it's screeching it's this crazy beat poetry going on and um, you know a lot of <clears throat> Maureen Tucker she was a drummer a lot of songs she was just using a snare that was it it was and that's um, so like <laughs> that was it she had a snare maybe some brushes and that's it um, so it's a, that, that kind of such stripped down madness um, that way um and then, so anyways, that's, uh, that, that got triggered for me. But then the other part of it is, you talk about this dissonance between songs, and the, the thing that got brought up for me right away was the Beastie Boys, right? And like, <clears throat> that whole punk rock mm. to hip hop to jazz funk groove thing that they would do, you know? Like on, a, on, on their <laughs> albums where they would literally move from like this, this little rip-roaring New York two-minute punk song to jazz funk groove to hip hop. And uh, so I'm... I'm a little present to that kind of moving around in, in genre, that genre jumping. Well, and you know what? It sounds like a band that's been around for a while that's having fun experimenting. It, it reminds me a lot of the White Album, um, which, Mike, I think you struggled with for the very same reason. Like, the songs don't seem to fit together, and there's songs mm-hmm. that feel like they're just, like, making weird noises, and they call it a song. Um and, and this feels something like that, almost like a band is jamming and try and you know trying to come up with their next trajectory. This is a debut yeah, album, though, where they're where they're they're just right from the beginning are saying we're going to experiment and try and figure this out as we go. Um, European Sun stood out for me as well, but not really because I liked it. It just sounded like a jam session with my high school buddies, like. 
hey, everyone, check it out. When I hold my guitar up to the amp this way, it makes this weird yeah. squeaking noise. And like, and let's play along with that, you know? And it just, that song in particular just feels like a band at its most raw, trying to make sense of like, uh, it's almost like they found themselves with music, uh, found themselves with instruments and thought like, what can we do? Um, in a way that I'm sure for the time felt uh, like, you know, you know, stepping out from a stage that the bass player stands here, the guitar player stands here, the haircut goes this way, the sound is these chords. Um, this must have just been like totally disorienting for the, the people in the late 60s who listened to it for the yeah, first time. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'm present to is, as we, we talk about too, um, is, you know, Mike, you were talking about this kind of moving around too, is these sort of hippy-dippy, is that the one? Uh, is that the right phrase? Um, <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, the, that's the that's how child. I the, uh, termed it. Yeah, but what I child. hear in that um, is almost that what you're talking about, Ben, is that that stretching, right? So this is a brand new band. They don't. This is their first album, right? Yeah. That's that's a crazy thing to think about on some level. Um, yeah. So you kind of yes, you absolutely. kind of put a femme fatale on there, right? Which is like it is arranged, it is orchestrated, it is in key. It is, uh, <laughs> right. It does all those things you're supposed to do. It checks the boxes for an yeah. appropriate song. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And then you put, and then you put black angels, death song on there. Right. And so there's this, there's this thing where you kind of like demonstrate that you can do the thing. Right. And then you're like, and, uh, and then we're going to do this. Right? Yeah. Like get, get that, get that viola out. Mm-hmm. Let's do this thing. You know, it's going to get ugly. it doesn't it doesn't strike me as a protest album in an overt way but it gets to what uh, reverend donna king was saying when we talked about marvin Gaye. that that in uh, music when you get dissonance it leads to unrest which can lead to uh to change and and it happens you know and that music dissonance can lead to social change then too um i think that's why this album becomes so uh, seminal and inspirational for so many others. When you when you have these sounds back to back that don't fit with each other, it takes your mind in a direction um, that that sparks something new. And um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I don't know what to do with it now. Like, <laughs> I guess that's mm. where where I struggle as I listen through it. There there are a lot of songs that I really enjoy. I also like. I'm waiting for the man. I like run 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 and. And even some of the hippy dippy stuff, I'll be your mirror. I think is maybe my favorite of, of those sort of slower moving tracks. Um, Ooh, uh-huh. But I don't know what to do with them uh, in this sort of unit of songs, and and because I'm not currently a practicing musician, I don't know what to do with that dissonance either. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to take that creative energy then and put it into yeah. something. And maybe that's where I end up feeling just tense at the end rather than wow that was wonderful (laughs) yeah and maybe that's i mean i think the tension may be the 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 appropriate response right the intended response even maybe um yeah i think there's a level where they're they're trying to create something off you know you're not black angel's death song isn't supposed to lull you to sleep right like <laughs> like it, but some of the others do. Right, 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 right. But like they, they, yeah. they, they finish. They do. I'll be your mirror, right? And it's like they yeah. finish hard. You know, like uh, you know, the the last yeah. two songs kind of come at you. And uh, heroin is is one of those songs. 
I, I always enjoyed it. And I, it's funny because I was a straight-laced kid. Uh, um, and I still just, you know, there's something about that song being sucked in, even though it's like this incredibly detailed and explicit song about about doing drugs and how it feels and all that stuff and this whole out this whole thing's about it yeah like there's something about it it was just like like you were just there right like yeah. there's a rawness to the to the the way it was written you know there wasn't any pretense there wasn't any posturing like hey like i like doing heroin yep yeah it reminds me of a movie that is so real that you you can't decide whether to turn it off and disconnect from that or just fully immerse yourself mm. in it. Mm. I remember that I was way too young when I watched Pulp Fiction for the first time, but I remember being oh. so uh, drawn in by, by, especially some of the drug usage there, and thinking like, I, I don't like this, but I can't stop watching. And I think these songs kind of do that too. They transport you in a way that is, that is powerful and jarring at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the thing that's present for me, too, is you just bring that up, this idea of drug use and portraying it in, like, honest ways, right, is uh, yeah. this, 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 this is where um, the pastor thing comes up, right? Uh, I think about how the church does such a horrible job of actually talking about stuff, you know, um, yeah. that, like, we just vilify all the things and then expect you not to do them, like... <laughs> like there's a reason there's a reason why people do drugs like it provides a thing you know uh, yep. it, it does good things it may have some it may have some uh, some side effects right but but it does good things like sex uh, uh, sex feels good right like um, so like to just kind of not talk about it and just vilify sex right yeah it's this kind of disservice that the church does by not having an honest conversation. And I think there was something just so vulnerable and honest about this album. And that, <clears throat> that you know, there's no pretense, right? There's a certain visceralness to, the, to, to, to Lou Reed, right? Just, <laughs> right? just to Lou Reed, you know, uh, independent of, like, the yeah. Velvet Underground. Like, and, and, yeah, he, he defined who this band was. I just remember this interview with him, and this was... You know, in the '90s, probably. So he's got he's got to be a good 60, 50, 60 years old, right? This isn't he's an old young punk anymore. And somehow, like somebody brought up his dad. Maybe maybe the interviewer said, like, uh, you know, did your your dad get you your first guitar, or you know, some kind of cutesy softball interview, right? And uh, and Lou Reed goes, "My dad never gave me." <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, and it's like that's this album, right? Like, yep, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That raw honesty. <laughs> uh, you could just yeah, see so the interviewer I, I cringing, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah. uh I finally <laughs> got an interview with Lou Reed, and I just screwed it all up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's why this album is hard to to know what to do with because I think it would make sense if all the songs felt like that sentiment you know if, if all the songs were that sort of dark place um, but it doesn't yeah. stay there and that maybe that's the genius in it that it, it sways us back and forth um, in some ways yeah I think in some ways it would feel like a more cohesive thing that I knew how to package in my brain if they were all dark or if they were all hippy dippy um, but we've got this weird yeah dance between those yeah. two spaces as well i was listening to this album you know quite actually quite a bit 
leading up to our conversation here because I really wanted to you know give it my best shot and give it give it a chance and near the end like in the last couple of days I decided to go a little deeper and read some of the lyrics which is not something I usually do and was something I was really trying not to do with this album because they're super weird uh, <laughs> but but I, I started reading them and okay this album I'm imagining these people are so steeped in this very specific scene in New York in the mid 60s which was really intent intense um, a lot of drug use a lot of uh, intricate social happenings and you guys might relate to this because you're both work you know in the church and in biblical circles I remember saying to somebody once you know I'm I really I want to get into the book of Revelation. I want to understand it more. And someone said to me, well, first, you're going to have to spend a year in the book of Daniel. Mm. <laughs> and, and I thought, man, I don't have a year to spend in the book of Daniel. I don't, I don't want to do that. Just tell me about Revelation now. Yeah. And I feel like this album, without fully understanding that scene in yeah. New York in that time, because as we started to dig into, like, the Black Angels Death Song, which is a super visceral song uh, lyrically. There are so many. It, it's poetry, but it's it's just dripping with simile and imagery and all this stuff. And uh, all tomorrow's parties. We were kind of my wife and I were listening to it and reading out the lyrics and actually looking at a few websites to try and pick some of it apart and get some of the ah. hidden meaning behind it starting to make starting to make a little more sense it was all tomorrow's parties is any person in that scene who who can't ident can't figure out how to identify themselves and they keep putting on other clothes to try and show themselves uh try and dress themselves up as something they're not mm. and then at the end their clean clothes are always dirty and rags because mm. they just don't fit in and so I'm starting to understand the place where this album comes. So I feel like because I don't understand that era and I don't understand that scene, I can't really access this album. And that's not a criticism. That's just me where I'm at. And, 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 and it's interesting for sure. But it was super, super challenging to really get it. Um, and probably another reason I stopped reading Revelation. <laughs> I would, well, and, and the thing I would say though is, I think that I don't think that what the the lyrics to Altamont Parties, right? I don't know that they necessarily push something specific to the New York 1960s scene, right? I think that you know, like, right, right, like it, but okay, it pushes yeah, yeah, something to a party scene, right? And that party scene uh, is something that. Uh, uh, you know, good church boy going boys don't end up in, right? They aren't at the clubs. They aren't. Um, but I, but I think no. there, there's a reality of how, um, you know, for me that, that sort of, I think that sort of just resonated with me without me even thinking about it. Right. So, I mean, these, these, this, um, right. yeah, I think there, there is a level where it's a club scene and a club scene. I don't know if one existed, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. There's, there's been club scenes since, since Beethoven probably. Um, so, you know, just the kind of underground music scenes <laughs> sort of existed in these smaller chamber music, whatever. Um, so yeah, I would, uh, that would be my thought a little bit too, is it, it may be more just that kind of underground scene where drugs were okay. And I mean, one of the things that, that people right. talked about also is like David Bowie was massively influenced both by Velvet Underground and also by the scene, right? So there's this kind of, 
uh, a good bit of um, androgyny uh, that that comes out of this scene. Uh, <clears throat> so yep. even that kind of how that spills over into this glam rock thing that happens in, in over in the UK and uh, how pieces of of this spill over. Yeah, it was only in starting to look at the the album notes that I realized that there was a female lead singer. I think I just assumed that there was a a willingness to have a more effeminate sounding male voice. Um, There's like some, something similar to uh, T-Rex on this album. Um, A band that I think is okay with a more effeminate sounding uh, male lead vocalist. And, and I don't, and until actually clicking through the songs, I wasn't even sure which songs were sung by Lee Reed and which songs were sung by, by Nico. And that is something kind of unique and amazing that they were able to push gender in that way that it all just kind of um, lulls you into the sense that it's the same band um, <clears throat> doing these tracks, but it's, it's actually somewhat different. I'm coming at this, too, at a very intellectual mm-hmm. uh angle uh-huh. okay and and that's that's me trying to figure it out and and that might not be appropriate all the time for for this song or any yeah. music whereas if you're just listening to it if if you know a uh, 16 year old bob is listening to this um he's not listening to it necessarily at a intellectual trying to figure out all the history he's just experiencing yeah. it and so many people are just experiencing it and taking from and that's and music is great for that and i don't want to take that yeah, away from yeah. this because i think for the most part that's but but i'm just so curious because we're talking about this list and talking about kind of why are these albums great and where did they come from and why did the influence yeah. and i want to yeah i want to yeah. learn and i want to know yeah. what i can but uh but it's it's a tricky one for sure and and that does make it fun too yeah. I, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing I, that I'm kind of intrigued by, too, the question that came up is, as you were sharing, Mike, about this idea of kind of intellectually approaching it and, and mm-hmm. how, like, 16-year-old Bob was, <laughs> he, he, thought, he thought too much, just like 43-year-old Bob does. But, um, <laughs> but, like, at the end of the day, like, if you crank it in, if you turn your system all the way up, right, it, like does it does it hit you in the chest you know like at the end yeah. of the day like when, uh, there's just this visceralness to it you know at the it, that's the appeal of this to me you know when i when that when you i don't know if either of you in your kind of time of listening you know have kind of turned your stereo up loud enough to upset your significant other um you know like <laughs> in the listening of some of these different records and I, you know when i hear european sun like i just need to hear that loud you know like and it's just sort of it's or even or even waiting for my man or run 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 like there's just this kind of you know when the volume's loud enough that you can actually feel the the vibrations um there's something that pulls you in that's a little different i I think it's the same way with like a with like a Jimi hendrix you know um uh that there's there there's just this virtuosity right on Jimi hendrix it's not not part of elf underground and um yeah that but but there's still a visceralness to to Jimmy and how he does things. That it's just uh, that I think you get some of that in here too. I was fascinated to see that that um, you know I was looking at the context. You know this idea when people keep pushing. Well, it was 1967, and this this band, you know, Velvet Underground, this this album just broke. You know, I had to look at like, well, what else was released? And you know, the Jimi yes. Hendrix 
uh, first record came out and the, the experience. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't forget Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. Um, so the thing that we keep going back to is the disjointedness, right? Like I, if I, yeah. you know, if I were to pick this album out, right, I would pick Waiting for My Man, Run, 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 um, Heroin, uh, Black Angels, that song, European song. I could, I could deal with like, I, I'd pay, you know, two thirds off for two thirds of the album. <laughs> and, um, and I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really totally miss uh, the other songs. Yeah. But as you go into like deeper into Velvet Underground's catalog, as they develop, I generally would argue that those songs are more clear prototypes for who they became, mm. but they're not they're not that raw, right? Like they're not, I mean, you guys know, like Sweet Jane is sort of this beautiful sort of, um, well, you guys probably only know the Cowboy Junkies cover, but like, because you're yeah, younger. I don't than know. Me. I don't even know that. I'm, yeah. I'm really am new to yeah, this. I'm, yeah, I'm lost. So, <laughs> so, like, as you move into some of the deeper Velvet Underground, you know, the further along stuff before they broke up and all that stuff, um, you know, I feel like that stuff's a little more prototypical, but you still do get some of that kind of, you know, uh, rock and roll, hippy dippy stuff. But it, it's, it's, it's sort of bouncing back and forth, but I feel like that. <laughs> that groovy that that kind of deep uh hearty groove but also the same thing like what you're saying is that um those those lyrics uh, also kind of end up being and that's that's always been lou reed's kind of you know thing right like just telling a story that not everybody wants not everybody knows but it's but it's but everybody's interested yeah you mentioned something there bob that that we haven't i don't think we explicitly talked about yet is that this album on our Rolling Stone Top 500 list is the first debut mm. album on the list, which I think is really interesting and significant. The other albums are maybe the the 10th or 12th or nth mm. released by that artist on the list. So we can see that some of the greatest albums are by artists who have, are well into their craft and now doing something that's okay, this is one of the best ever. And now right. we get to number 13. And it's a band that had never really released anything, yeah. and and they just go and they <laughs> they just uh, I want to say they just nail it because they didn't just nail it. They went and they <laughs> they, they did something. Created, <laughs> they did something, and it's totally unique. And and some of it yeah. we never heard before, right? And it's up here. And and I'm looking through the list, and and the only one the other one anywhere close to it on the list that I can pick out is two albums later, number 15 is what you just mentioned again the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Are You Experience which was their debut album as well but other than that, so many of them are not, you right. know we got it the first time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we we nailed it, you know, and this and this. so I find that very interesting especially for an album that's not, you know, as you brought up, it's not like here's the verse here's the chorus everything is finally in tune everything is structured Uh, that is not what this is yet it obviously resonates at least with the people who created the list but we know just much more than that hearing you say all that Mike reminds me of listening to the Dylan albums that we've uh, had so far on this list Mm. and um, 
And this dynamic when I listened to the Dylan albums was wondering how they would sound if they were a little bit more polished. You know, if the lead singer was a bit more in tune, if the instruments were tuned, if the if the studio quality was better. And I wonder if in this case, if that would make me enjoy the album more or if it would make it sound like a fairly mediocre release in the in the last decade. Um, you know, is there something about the grittiness of this project that's that actually does better in, a, in the sort of loose way that it was pulled together. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, at, uh, unless they, these guys would all come back and record it again now. Um, or if someone else would want to take that on, I, I don't know, but uh, it's just a random thought that was in my head. That would be a, a, a sidebar, is you could take, um, you compare the Velvet Underground Sweet Jane, which is off of, uh, I forget which album that's off of, and then compare that to the Cowboy Junkies version, which is this incredibly perfectly polished thing, right? And uh, and then you've got like, oh, just yeah. the, the, the rawness. Mm. I keep thinking of the word raw power, you know, like the Iggy and the Stooges album, like just this raw power. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think you hear that in Jimi Hendrix, right? It was kind of, and you hear that in this album, like it's sort of the boogie, he had the boogie in him and it's got to come out, you know, like, and, and just, <laughs> you know, that's what I hear in this. It's just like, there's just this force that needed to, yeah. Yeah. to be released. We've got a couple more chances with the Velvet Underground. They show up again at 110 with the album Loaded. Uh-huh. And then, uh, let's see, where else? Number 293, if we get it that far, <laughs> White Light, White Heat. Uh-huh. And then uh, the Velvet Underground, 1969, coming at 316. Um, wow! So yeah, it's <laughs> they show up a number of times for a band that neither Mike nor I had really ever <laughs> yeah. listened to. Uh, we're going to get a number of other chances. Is the production quality pretty different in all yeah, of those? They're, they're all pretty. Bob? They're all pretty raw. This is this is as raw as it gets. Um, um, okay. And the 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 crazy the crazy jam session stuff like that's a little less uh, prominent. You know, it still happens, but it's not as not as wild. Yeah. Consider eighty percent of their studio albums are on this five hundred list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Four out of five albums that they did are amazing. Are here. So uh, strap yourself in, Bob. We're gonna have you back. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe we need to do a side uh, project where we take on the the fifth album since <laughs> we'll have to just to complete the yeah. complete the box set. Yeah, well, you know, if you're feeling this way about the, you know, if it didn't yeah. strike you with the first album, I don't know if you want to delve deep. I mean, like I said, I mean, there may have been a good amount of teenage angst that drew me into this album in the first place. Um, yeah, and you know, I have I, I share yeah. I share mixed feelings about my father with Lou. So I mean, we can we can bond. In that way, um. <laughs> I will say I think I appreciate it just a little bit more every single time I put it on, um, and and that's not always the case mm-hmm. with albums. I, you know, there are some where familiarity makes it better, but that doesn't always happen. And for this one, it is that I, I think I enjoy I enjoy it each yeah. time I put it on. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm curious to see too if if there isn't something pushing me back you know now that this episode is complete uh will i continue to want to listen to it Mm. i don't know we'll see Uh, well i guess i mean i guess there is this place too where you can relate it a little bit to to techno um 
because it was a club scene, right? Techno was a club scene. Techno was loud music, uh, loud bass heavy music in uh, dark places, right? Um, so that's what these people were up to as well. Right. Um, you know, just kind of you can hear in some of these tunes, these massively bass forward um, songs and uh, just kind of a driving beat. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I feel that kind of visceral uh, nest to it and um, yeah, it's just sort of it's, it's as I, I, I listen to it, I mean I've listened to it enough I was like I don't want to listen to it again but yesterday I was like I might as well put this on if we're going to talk about it and um, you know, I was I was I was uh, uh, sorting some <laughs> things out while it was on but I, I um, yeah everything it does always like I kind of like wait through those, uh, I wait through, you know, I'll be your mirror, femme fatale. You know, <laughs> wait room for the for the real stuff to come. You know? Right? Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting, and and I love that. And thank you for being honest about that. I love Bob that that's kind of, you know, you like the whole album, but really those are the ones like you just want to sink your teeth yeah. into, and and you're you're desperate to hear them when you've got the album on, which which is cool because sometimes it's not a whole album that mm-hmm. I want. I want just a piece of it or part of it, or or yeah. maybe I want different parts at different yeah. times. So that's very, that's very there's cool. This, yeah, there, there's this um, moment I had. See, techno is this very, um, someone called it hedonistic, right? It's very like, I want all the things now. I just want the, uh, like I want it all, <laughs> I want it intense, I want, right? And, and I was listening to uh, one of my favorite albums um, by Prince, which is his... Um, it's called Parade. Uh, it's got a black and white cover. It's the one that Kiss is on. Um, but there's a song called Sometimes It Snows in April, um, which is awful because it's about a friend dying and Prince dies in April. And anyways, um, sorry. I, oh, wow. <laughs> Prince is, Prince, I would call him Prince my favorite artist. So now I'm like, anyway. But he, oh, um, wow. but he does this. There's this moment. There's just this beautiful moment, right? in the song we're just like ah it's so amazing and ah and um yeah but it's just a moment right and 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 then you kind of you just left wanting right and um so there's this beauty in experiencing that that conversation or that journey and and techno uh, it's sort of different because the idea is that the DJ is intermingling all these songs to take you on that longer journey that's more like three hours than the five minute yeah. song, right? <laughs> but there's, um, right? But like in an album, right? And there's, I still have a, an attachment to albums. And um, because there's just, you know, you kind of, you're giving yourself into this story that someone else is telling. And I can tell you guys have a passion for albums. Otherwise, you wouldn't do something ridiculous like uh, attempt <laughs> this project, right? You must have some passion for the album as a as a as a yeah. medium, not just a song, but for an sure. album. Right. And um, and there's something, uh, you know, like uh, what I heard, Mike, in, in your comments was almost like. Did they even think about doing an album? Like, did they just sort of like make some songs and put them together and write? Like, did they did they not feel like splicing the tape into a different order? Yeah. You know, like, um, yeah. 
um, just this level of like, well, could you just put the nice ones on one side and the rough ones on the other? And <laughs> it's my um, OCD coming through. <laughs> and, and, and no, and it may, and I don't know. And that's, and we don't know, like, we don't know that actual question. Like, why did, why didn't they kind of put like, put like things together, right. you know? Um, mm-hmm. But there's something about that experience of, of, uh, of, be, of, of kind of allowing ourselves to be into that, that moment that we, that we're out of control, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that um, that we're we're kind of allowing someone to to tell the story the way they want to. Oh, I love that. I, I really like that too. That's that's really neat. And there are times some of the tracks that are so real, they made me uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I really felt that that someone was just letting go of everything. And and there are a couple of tracks more than once that I had to skip. And not because I didn't like them, but because it was just too much. Hmm. Like sometimes I, I hear that with, you know, you said about techno, about this, you want everything all at once now. And there are times when it was, um, uh, I think, I think two, two tracks in particular, I know we've talked about the tracks, but two tracks in particular, uh, the black angels death song and Venus and furs with some of these droning sounds or screeching sounds that, just seem to amplify and get greater. I just no enough. I'm. I, that's it. I can't do it anymore. Yeah, um, and yeah. not necessarily in a in a way I'm revolting, but I just I'm just getting worked up by it because it's just too much. And that's yeah, yeah. that's very uh, intimate. It's very personal. Mm-hmm. And that is a as you're as we're talking through it. That's something I'm appreciating more and more. Even in the last hour, we talked about it. Just the intimacy. And the uh, transparency of the artists here, which is is very unique. Yeah, uh, a word that a word that's come up a lot is is authentic, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm really I'm really starting to understand that better. Yeah, that's good stuff. Man, we're going deep, deeper and deeper each time <laughs> with these. It's a, it's a deep dive. <laughs> okay, so well, let's transition here. So, a question that we ask. And and Bob, you've 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 written down kind of an answer here, which I really like. Is the album still relevant? Mm-hmm. And and I love your answer. I wonder if you'd kind of repeat it for us and explain it here. The the idea that uh, authenticity is always relevant, right? Like the the experience of humanity is the experience of humanity, right? Like the the reason why <clears throat> I'm a Christian is because the the story that the prophets and Jesus tell is exciting to me and it's relevant to me, right? Um, um, right. There's a, there's an authentic, there's, it speaks of the human experience and the human experience is the same, uh, even if we're separated by millennia. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, I think the authenticity is, is very much, um, helps it not be, helps it be relevant. I think that the, there's certain <clears throat> hippy dippy tracks that do feel dated, right? Um, yep. But I don't. I don't necessarily think that they, uh, you know, like you, like you shared about the the lyrics to all tomorrow's parties. There's a certain relevance to that to any sort of oh yeah uh, clubbing partying scene or you know uh, socialite scene or whatever. You know, any sort of social network that people are trying to break into would would really fall into some of that. So. Mm-hmm. I think you said what I was thinking, but you just said it much more. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you were more articulate in the way you said it, but 
those are the tracks that I felt were relevant. Some of the grungier ones, some of the ones that were more raw. And it was the, that flower child ones that I felt were really stuck, mm-hmm. uh, in the mid sixties. Uh, the other ones, I think you can hear that in, you know, you can hear it punk in the eighties. You can hear it in the post punk. You can hear it in grunge. You can hear it in some of the, you know, the, the indie rock of the last 15 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. That you still hear that the other stuff, you know, the Glockenspiel, uh, you don't you don't hear it as much. Well, maybe a little more now, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I think the the parts of the album that you are wanting to hear uh, are the ones that <laughs> the ones that are still relevant. Uh, what about you, Ben? How do you feel on that? Yeah, I'm. I think. In addition to wondering how this would sound if everything was in tune, I found myself <laughs> thinking about, uh, you know, how many bands that I now love and enjoy, um, whether they realize it or not, were influenced by this by this record. Um, and I mentioned T-Rex already as a, a, at least one of their albums I really love. Uh, Nick Drake is an artist that... Uh, you know, also had that ability to be raw and frank and honest and, mm, you know, so you know and it's a bit of a tragic demise of his, of his life because of all of that. Um, but even in the sort of loose structure to his songs, it drew me, it drew me to his music, listening to this album, um, more, more modern bands like the arcade fire and, um, I guess Violent Femmes are a little bit older than that, but they both have that kind of driving force that you talked about, Bob, this sort of, um, you know, we're just going to get into a groove and push through these songs. And it doesn't matter if every note is perfect because we're going to feel something while we (laughs) perform this, uh, even if it's on the album. Um, And, and so I think that's, that's really, really cool to sort of go back and, and in the same way that it's been so enlightening to think about, my appreciation for MXPX now, you know, having other punk music in my music history repertoire, I think this album is helping me appreciate the the bands that I know and love that have come after it. Um, I think I don't have as much of a problem with uh, the more hippie sounding tracks uh, because I think I'm drawn to some modern <laughs> artists that have some more laid back uh, kind of sixties influence hmm. as well. And I'm, I think I'm more convinced that the sound quality is what makes this feel dated rather than the, the music styling. I think that there's enough weirdness in, in indie rock right now um, that I think this would play pretty well. Uh, you know, artists like Sufjan Stevens and um, um, Father John Misty have this kind of weird, hippie, psychedelic feel at times and uh and i think that there's something to that and perhaps again maybe perhaps they were also uh, influenced as well um i think uh the thing that i when when i'm plugged in with that arcade fire connection it made me think about um all the music that's come out of the Northeast in the last decade and a half two decades maybe in that sort of indie rock scene and i think I think the Velvet Underground would fit right in if they were um, playing in that same space today, um, because a lot of it is sort of experimental. Um, you know, you see guys playing their electric guitar with a violin bow, and you know, just holding weird dissonant chords for a long time and kind of screaming over it because 
that's the emotion that they want to project, not necessarily because it sounds really good. So, so I think actually it's more relevant than I thought it would be given its cover and given even my first listens with it where I didn't know what to do with it. I think now I feel like it's actually more timeless than I, than I originally thought. Cool. <laughs> now about this next part that we uh, get to, um, uh, was it sound logic to put this album at number 13 on the Rolling Stone top 500 album list? That's where I'm struggling a bit more. Um, because I don't, I don't think most people know it. And, and I think there has to be something about popularity that goes into a list like this. I love it for its influence and I love it for its authenticity and rawness. Um, but it just has too much enigma and mystery uh, and obscurity for me to think that, that this is the, that there are only 12 albums better than this one uh, <laughs> in yeah. music history. Um, I don't know. What about, what about the two of you guys? I'd probably bump it down. Um, if I was given the choice, I'm, I mean, uh, you know, to have one of your kind of rock out teenage jams, uh, up, up pretty high, you know, like it, it, for me, it's a certain affirmation of the, the experience I have. Right. right? Sure. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know how you pick. I mean, at some point I look at like how many, uh, Beatles and Bob Dylan records are in the top 20. And at some point it just gets ridiculous, right? Like, um, at some point, it's just it's just um, you know uh, you can't you can't uh, name five hundred records and then put one artist you know all all in the top ten um, so to speak. Like there's kind of this weirdness about it that that uh, gets sort of so. So I have I don't even know what their so I don't know what their logic. I don't know what they were trying to intend. Right? Like if at some point you're trying to say like, well, this mm-hmm. is the most important album. This is thirteenth most important album. That's different. You know. Um, cause I, I think about mm-hmm. the way music influences, right? Like yes. how, um, you know, um, you know, as, as I was in this techno seed in the nineties, uh, making all this ridiculous, these ridiculous noises with keyboards and drum machines and into the two thousands. Right. And then, and then here I am in like 2009, 2010 and, and, um, like almost all hip hop had started using those type of noises, Right. Um, noises that we uh, had kind of created in this sort of techno scene had somehow bubbled up, you know, or transferred over. Somebody heard it in the club and then they said, oh, uh, uh," right. And so this kind of idea of influence and how that happened and who brought what to which, like, it's just such a convoluted trail in the, in this kind of, uh, this kind of family tree of music. And it kind of goes back and forth. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's some hip hop heads who would be offended to, hear that you know the the producers in 2000 and, uh, had started listening to techno but but at some point you know that's that was my observation we we're making these crazy new noises and all of a sudden five years later <clears throat> and i think you see that same thing yeah. happening right with the with the with the velvet underground like these this these noises these song structures these right these different things that were um in this album that looked totally different right that you know 10 years later they're just kind of conventional you mm-hmm. know uh so it is. It's hard for us to process the this. So yeah, as we put it on a list of like the top five hundred albums. I mean, I, uh, I have. That's just a crazy thing to create. So it's hard for me to even. <laughs> yeah. You know, like to to kind of process how you how you do that and how you, um, 
you know, put those things together. So totally. So are you Mike? Yeah, I struggle with it uh, at this spot. Uh, one thing that we probably don't do enough is kind of looking at an excerpt from Rolling Stone's articles about these. And, and I just want to pull a couple things that Rolling Stone wrote about the album in this, in this list. Uh, just a couple little tidbits here. It says, um, it is a record of fearless breadth and lyric depth. Uh, singer-songwriter Lou Reed documented carnal desire and drug addiction, decadence and redemption, with a pop wisdom he learned as a song factory composer for Pickwick Records. Um, and at the end it said, uh, it was rejected as nihilistic by the love crowd in 1967, but it is also the most prophetic rock album ever made. So you get this, again, this dichotomy. And so we've discussed many different problems with this list or problems that we see in, in this 500 list. And one of them is it seems an urge or a directive by the people putting it together to put albums that represent either an artist, a song or a period and put that album there, not to represent the album itself, to represent mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. thing that they want to represent. Right. And right. I think what they're doing here, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but what they're doing here is they're putting this album here for the things it represented and the things it influenced years down the road, which, don't get me wrong, is very significant. But as an album, I just really struggle. I think if this showed up anywhere between 40 and 80 I would have no problem because I would I feel like I'm going to get to albums in that period that go what's this and start researching it and listen to it go oh that's pretty good oh and I can really see how that okay yeah I see its place here but I struggle with that there're only again as you said Ben there're yeah. only 12 albums ever made if we take the list literally the name of it it's only 12 albums ever made ever that are better than this in terms of right popularity and listenability et cetera, et cetera. that's where i struggle and and we've talked before that i'm i'm a little more legalistically minded <laughs> when it comes to those things um mm-hmm. so that's where i struggle with it if it has to do with influence then yeah for sure but if it just has to do with the album then i would see it a lot lower uh that, that's kind of where i'm at but i well, and you're still bitter that Dark Side of the Moon is all the way down at 43. So uh, I was really hoping you wouldn't bring that up <laughs> <laughs> because um, actually, I'm going to do that episode by myself just so I have a whole hour to rant about because <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and okay, how come you know? This this is more influential in their mind than all the things that happened on 1973's Dark Side of the Moon, and that sure. that album that went on to be on that album was on the Billboard for like 40 years, um, you know, for sales, you yeah. know. So so again, there's I see problems with the list. All that being said, I get why it's here. I understand why they would, they would put it here and. Uh, having listened to it and hear the stories, Bob, hear your experience with it um, as someone who grew up, you know, 20 years later. Um, yeah, I see I see its place here. Personally, I'd put it lower, but that doesn't mean I'm right. 
We really appreciate you taking the time here uh, with us tonight, Bob. We know we've kept you quite a while here now, and uh, and we really appreciate your insight and your input and, and all of that. It, it's been great. Well, uh, thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. Um, we will need some help with the other uh, Velvet Underground albums, so consider this yeah. an open invitation to to be back on the show at some point uh, if we make it that far. Yeah, we'll, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll call you in four years. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I know <laughs> you're right. now. I know, like, you're basically just going to make it to to Dark Side of the Moon and call it. I mean, I'm, I can I can see that that's now. Right. Like that's, <laughs> that's got to get there. Gotta get yeah. there. That's the only reason I started the project. it's going to get to 43 and then we're done (laughs) Bob it's been a pleasure to have you here and uh, and really great to have your insight as as a a, someone who authentically really enjoys this album and grew up with it I really appreciate your insight yeah thanks thanks no it was was good to share and good to talk about it music's always been a a a real blessing in my life and uh, so it's just it's good to talk about it now and again awesome well, next time we uh, we we've got another album, right? <laughs> What's Def- up next, Mike? Definitely. Uh, we hope you join us next time when we discuss album number fourteen on Rolling Stone Magazine's top five hundred album list, which is Abbey Road by the Beatles. I think we've even got a guest for you that time as well. We do have a guest, and and yes, Bob, you're right. This is this is at least the fifth time we've talked about the Beatles so far. It's got to be rough. See, I mean, it's, it's just. It may, I bet each one gets shorter. You know the. Uh, all right, there's four Beatles, and they wrote songs, and then sometimes there's a fifth Beatle. Well, yeah. Uh, you would think that that was true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, shameless plug, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> I think actually the White Album was our longest episode to date, and it was num- number four of those uh, first four Beatles albums. So, Uh-oh. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that classic episode of ours. Tune in next time for the next album on the new 2020 Rolling Stone list.